There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect, debate success, ingenuity, a little smattering of behavioral science, but that's me, and also the future possibilities for our industry and for marketing as a whole. And today, we're looking at the success of one of the fastest growing startups in recent years, the Disruptor brand, which has had an impressive impact on the UK's energy market. Bulb was founded in 2015 by Hayden Wood and Amit Goodcup because they were fed up with the way the energy industry treated its customers and with how much businesses were charging for renewable energy. They now have 1.7 million customers, which is about 6% of the UK domestic market, and have just launched their services in Spain, France and indeed Texas, with plans for further international growth. Hayden's now the CEO of Bulb, and Amit is their chief energy officer. And I'm delighted to be joined by them both. So Hayden and Amit, welcome to the podcast. Hello, good morning. Hi, Rory. Well, I have to say, when I read that figure of 6%, I was kind of aghast. Because starting from nowhere, uh, that's an incredible level of growth. And Okay, the UK energy market's seen a lot of change in recent years. Why do you think bulb has been such a success when you founded bulb in 2015 did you have a five-year plan and did it include this level of growth i think yeah going back to the plan in 2015 um when you look back at the plans that we were putting together then and in 2014 uh, which is when we started uh working on it the plans in five years um didn't have us getting to 1.7 million uh properties by by this point so you know, we have exceeded expectations. Um, but I think also the proposition that we've had, uh, so to provide simpler, cheaper and greener energy to people um, has also had a, you know, a much bigger uptake than we also expected. Um, and, you know, as we've continued throughout this journey, we've seen bigger and bigger, you know, appetite for what we've been offering. So, yeah, it's been a really, um, you know, exciting journey over that period, not what we initially expected, but um, you know, throughout, we've been continually updating our forecasts. And, um, you know, when, we're, we're now not surprised to be at the, at the place where we are and, you know, have continued big plans for the future. Now, interestingly, both of you were in the energy industry to begin with. That's right, isn't it? And you both essentially started this business uh, by seeing what irritated you about the way the established players tended to operate. 
That, that's right. We, um, Amit had been a, a, a wholesale energy trader uh, after studying a, a maths degree at Cambridge. And I was a, I was a management consultant and I've worked um, in some parts of the, the energy industry, mainly in the retail bit, uh, but before leaving to, to, to set up Bulb. And the things that, that struck us um, were, were that customers were just getting such a bad deal. Um, you had a lot of you know, opaque, confusing pricing. A lot of energy suppliers would have multiple tariffs. Um, some were cheap, some were more expensive. A lot of the uh, customers who forgot to check their bills and switch were on the most expensive standard tariffs. Um, we also saw that energy customers, uh, when they needed, when they had a problem with their account and they needed to get in touch with someone, they would often uh, send an email or call their, their supplier and have to wait a very long time um, to get a response. They'd often get lost in a maze of, um, you know, uh, phone menu um, systems where they had to press different numbers to get through to different departments. And then when they got through to someone, that that person uh, didn't have access to the information that they needed just to solve the problem um, because of the, the the poor technology that was being used by by the um, by the incumbents. So, um, so we just thought it was a, you know, energy is such an important thing for everyone. You spend, you know, the average home spends a thousand pounds a year on their energy bills. It's the single biggest contributor to your carbon emissions. Um, and it felt, it felt neglected. It felt like um, something could be done better. Um, and we thought that starting with a blank sheet of paper and developing our own software was, was the best way to, to solve those problems. Um, and so that's what, that's what Bob tried to do. And in 2015, we set up this 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 this, uh, this business. We set we had a single tariff. It was low cost. Um, we had the best rated service. Um, but actually, the interesting thing in the early days was, um, even though we had this great proposition, it actually it wasn't that easy to add customers. Um, no, there was a lot of inertia uh, in the market. People people weren't switching. We got a lot of feedback from early uh, early customers saying. It just looks too good to be true. I don't understand how a company can help me both lower my bills and lower my carbon emissions and at the same time provide good service. It's just, I just, it looks suspicious. Um, and so really the, uh, despite people being very unhappy with their uh, current suppliers, um, they were still sticking with them. And that was really, um, I think that was one of the. Actually, that was around the first time we, we met you, Rory. You uh, you gave us some uh, some advice around uh, at that time about how to how to encourage people to to switch. Um, I, it, it's very interesting. I probably shouldn't have been giving you that advice for free, but never mind. Um, uh, it, it interests me a lot because actually you come up against something which we notice in behavioural science, which is called the too good to be true heuristic, which is that the brain automatically expects trade offs and almost becomes uncomfortable when they're not there. There's a wonderful case, which is that Diet Coke has to be made a teeny-weeny bit more bitter than ordinary Coke, because otherwise people don't believe it's a diet drink. I mean, there's no reason for it to taste slightly more um, citrusy or, or slightly more tart uh, than ordinary Coke, but they do that because you then believe you're making a little bit of a sacrifice of sweetness in order to gain the um, weight loss benefits. And you face a problem, in fact, when you actually say it does X and it does Y. 
Um, mm. I, I always argued that the reason that low-cost airlines strangely and counterintuitively made a lot of noise about what you didn't get, you know, you didn't get a pre-allocated seat, you don't get a meal, you don't get checked in luggage for free. Um, uh, part of the reason was to make the low price then seem plausible. Oh, I get it. I'm sacrificing this in order to save 60 quid on a you know, weekend break to Budapest back in the days when we did such things. And um, mm. uh, in a weird way, by having a dual proposition, you'd think in logical economic terms, that's an advantage. In fact, it tends to make people a little bit suspicious. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what we experienced. There was that that suspicion or, or it, it, you know, it, it, incredulity. And, and I think what we what we what we learned in that first year is that you have to you have to sort of uh, put those suspicions at ease and and we found that um, being reviewed very positively on uh, independent websites like Trustpilot and having um, positive articles about the company written in the press and then finally and most importantly having uh, a group of members who had already switched and had had a great experience and then became fans and evangelists for Bulb and would go out and tell their friends about, about what we were doing, that made a huge difference for us. And I think, you know, when it's, we always thought it was um, optimistic, hoping that people would talk about their energy supply with their friends in the, in the pub or in a restaurant or at a dinner party. But um, I think that is, that is what started to happen in 2016 and 17 when, when word started to spread about Bulb. We're always slightly suspicious of the promise of internet evangelists when they say that essentially mass advertising and promotion is no longer necessary. In other words, when you have more perfect information, including obviously referral and recommendation, uh, you need to advertise less because people decide on the facts. And in most cases, I think that's pr that's fairly unsafe assumption i think there are lots of categories where we choose on the basis of fame hmm. uh, you know it's very byron sharpie but you seem you spent relatively little on it on actual paid advertising is that right yes that is right we um we focused uh the majority of our spending on performance um advertising at the start and um, so that was paid but um but it wasn't until much later that we started to do more traditional advertising on, on, on TV, for example. So, and, and interestingly, just good to hear, you find that pays? Yes, we have. And, and, and what we've found is that the combination of the two um, is, is very valuable. So a referrer is, um, uh, you know, who is recommending Bulb to one of their, their friends, family or colleagues. They are more likely to succeed if the person that they're referring to has um, has heard about bulb through 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 paid media um, so ah. you've had good 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 results from you, you should you should as a person from the advertising industry i want to reassure you rory that we've had yes. very good results from advertising mm. so thank you and actually if you think about it also the referral is easier if the referrer has a confident expectation that the person he's talking to isn't going to think he's a weirdo for recommending something they've never heard of so it probably has a double effect, which is you're more likely to actually recommend. Well, that's an interesting one. I think there might be an ambiguous effect there because oh. one, one of the reasons that you recommend is, is because maybe the thing's unknown and you, you look... The best kept look, secret look, brand. Yeah, exactly. You look more helpful um, by, by introducing something that somebody might not have heard of. But, uh, 
but the, the 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 net of the two effects we found to be that it has it has made referral more positive yeah and you can understand that because in a sense it's what you might call corroboration i've heard of this thing through paid media i've now heard of it through a friend and there's quite a lot of evidence in marketing that if you hear the same message in different forms it doesn't just have an additive effect, it has a kind of multiplicative effect. But you're mm. a perfect living proof, by the way, of what Mark Ritson was talking about in the David Ogilvy lecture um, earlier this week, when he, is, he has become a huge advocate for what he calls bothism. He says that the whole marketing industry got mentally trapped, and I entirely agree with him here, it got mentally trapped in this false dichotomy between performance digital targeted activity and conventional media, as though for some reason you had to treat the two as if they were mutually exclusive, where mm. all the evidence shows that the thing that pays is actually doing both. That matches our experience. We found them to be complementary. Although I would add that if, you know, as a as a company, we have we have always really liked the idea and of of uh, allocating our marketing budgets to our members as opposed to media owners. That's a, whilst we agree that they are complementary and, and it works best um, to doing both at the same time, we've always, we've always enjoyed uh, the, uh, the, the sort of reward we can give back to our members um, in, in, in sharing those budgets. I think I think that maybe you know if you've had a mathematics degree, you may be disproportionately drawn to mainstream economics. And it's worth remembering that, of course, advertising may have a value to existing customers in the shape of reassurance. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. one of the heuristics might be a company. Now my energy company can afford to advertise a bit. Um, uh, it's a kind of reassurance that you're not operating on a shoestring and that you're not going to disappear. Also, of course, if you think about it in, um, uh, in t terms of time, the act of advertising suggests you plan to be in business for the long game and the long term, not that you're merely a kind of, uh, a, you know, a small player out to extract what you can as quickly as possible. Because if you think about trust, there's a very strong correlation between trust and long time horizons. You know, one of the reasons we wouldn't want to share our house with a crack addict is that once you have very short time horizons, uh, generally trust breaks down. In other words, your long-term reputational investment takes a backseat to short-term uh, necessity. And so the, the interesting theory in, in signaling theory would be that the, to some extent, the very display that you have resources to spare is a form of reassurance, not only to prospective buyers, but to existing ones. Mm, that makes sense. And I, and I think that's the, 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 the relationship that an energy supplier has with its customers, yeah. we call them members, is, is going to change or is changing already. You know, we want to supply more than just electrons and gas molecules into our, into our members' homes. We want to help them manage the energy within their home. And in the future, in the near future, that'll mean um, helping people install solar panels, helping people make the right choice on purchasing an electric vehicle. Um, maybe even people choosing to install a battery in their homes. And that type of relationship is a much more long-term relationship uh, with with a customer than um, simply providing with them with a tariff that they might find on a price comparison site.
I've always told utility companies, I said, I don't know this, but I'm willing to make a bet that if you go and look at your letters of complaint, you will find that an enormous proportion of them will start with a sentence like, I have been a customer of yours for X years. Imagine my surprise when. Which I think is evidence that actually people, that, that actually utility relationships are relational capitalism, not transactional capitalism. You see yourself as being part of something over time, you know, with you know mutual value exchange going forward, not being a kind of one-shot game. Mm, absolutely, and 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 that's that's um, that's very important for for us as a as a company and the values that that we hold uh, with our members. But I do think that there's um, there's more that uh, both bulb and other utility companies can do to to recognise that exchange. Now it's worth it's worth remembering um, before we turn this into a peer into uh, uh, into mass advertising. And um, uh, you had a very uh, generous and interesting referral scheme. I, I, I cut my teeth as a young copywriter on American Express member get member, so I've always had a bit of a warm spot for customer referral, uh, which is in a sense you know the purest form of advertising. How did it work? Very simple. Um, give fifty, get fifty. Uh, so if you if you uh, signed up um, one of your friends, you gave every single one of our members had a unique uh, link that they shared with their friends. If their friend used that link uh, to sign up to Bulb, both uh, both of them would get fifty pounds when they uh, when they joined. Uh, very good, and it was interestingly, it was also completely open. One of the quibbles I've had with some referral schemes is I think we feel very uncomfortable being rewarded for a referral if our own reward for doing so isn't transparent. So I think what's particularly elegant about the symmetry of that scheme is it's, look, mate, uh, I, I found these people excellent. And if we both sign up, I get 50 quid, you get 50 quid. One of the things that we, uh, that, that, that we discovered early on is that different types of people responded differently to different, um, to different incentives. And so we we observed this this uh, this this, um, this segment that emerged quite early on, where people would send messages to their friends, and they would say, "Look, we both get fifty pounds. By the way, um, I'm going to be donating the fifty pounds that I get to this charity." Um, and uh, and and that wow. was there. That was a uh, and so it was it was interesting to see that there were some people who almost treated it like a, a second job. They would they would we called them super referrers, and they were. They were not giving um, their uh, their rewards to charity, um, but there was another segment that were that, that, that were making those donations. You see that oh, that that bears out my theory that there are a certain number of people who almost feel less comfortable making a recommendation when it is incentivized. So I think mm. that's a beautiful way in which people have solved that problem for themselves. I, th I think that's what you might call bulby, isn't it? The fact that it's absolutely you, you you describe your your brand values rather self-reflexively as being bulbiness, which, by the way, um, Byron Sharp would probably love you for that, the whole point about distinctiveness, that the whole point of, you know, of a brand is to be highly distinctive, that differentiation is to a degree overrated, and that distinctiveness. So what constitutes bulbiness? I know it's always subjective to a degree, but do you have a set of rules or criteria? Yeah, we do. We've, um, you know, it's been really key to how we've how we set up the business in the first place so you know initially um Hayden and I we spent a long time a lot of late evenings uh late nights 
before we'd you know come up with the brand come up with the name um really thinking through our values um and you know really interrogating them and we spent you know we spent weeks months on this um and that was before we came up uh you know with the brand and, and the name sort of was the the name bulb was the last thing that came um after that so so yeah it's been really core to to the development of bulb throughout um and then quite early on we um you know we had a session with our with with the team so this is when we were quite small i think when we had you know maybe 20 uh, 20 to 25 people in the team and um and you know we went through you know it's a very you know you know across across all the members of the team to come up with our with our values um and we updated them again um i think just about a year ago so it's something that we've you know it's been a big focus of ours from the beginning but something that we're constantly thinking about and constantly updating and it's not only how we operate internally but also really drives how we interact with our with our members um so you know all of our all of our team um own a part of bulb um so you know i think that really helps drive that that bulbiness amongst everyone so having having everyone aligned in that way um we we became a b corp very early on so uh, which meant that you know we're not only thinking solely about shareholder value as a company we're thinking about people planet um and profit so we were the first um energy supplier to be doing that in the uk and that's been very core to what we do so it really drives a lot of our decision making so um, so b corp just for listeners who may not know it's it's effectively now legally enshrined that you exist as a corporation not solely um with the function of shareholder value uh, that it's accepted that um, your fiduciary duty, if you like, is is to a wider audience, not only to shareholders. That's probably a fair way of putting it. And I think that also affects the way in which you can be taken over. Is that right? As you say, Rory, it's enshrined in our company documents. So any decision made by the board uh, would be um, reflecting the best thing for stakeholders, not just shareholders. So you're absolutely right. If I'm right, the B Corp was created by someone who was forced by law to sell a brand to the highest bidder, knowing that the large company that was the highest bidder would destroy the very brand that he'd created. (laughs) And um, uh, but you know, because he'd created a brand which actually was focused on multiple stakeholders, and he knew full well that once the highest bidder took over, uh, that what you might call that sort of balanced scorecard would be replaced by something much more kind of single-minded and kind of you know venal generally mm. and um it's a it, it's a very interesting decision you've taken to do that i mean i th- i think it's really commendable and i i'm also really interested actually i have to ask you a question because i'm in the behavioral science business what's your approach to smart meters you presumably have an approach what's your view on them uh, do you have a magic trick for getting people to adopt them we are huge fans of smart meters and the members um, that we have that have installed a smart meter really like them. Uh, the reason we we think they're great, and the reason we think they're great for our members is because they remove a lot of the drudgery and confusion that you have around um, energy bills. So a lot of people get in contact with Bulb and say, I don't agree with the estimates that you've put in my latest bill. I'd like to use actual readings. And if you have a smart meter, you can you don't have you don't you know you no longer have to use those estimates you can receive a, a bill for your energy and it's actually what you've used 
The second thing, and I think this is connecting to a bigger, uh, you know, not just around billing now, but the second thing that smart meters do is they improve the, the way the energy system works. So with a smart meter, you can begin to install solar panels and batteries in people's homes and pay them for the energy that they generate and store. Um, the, the energy grid will be much, um, much more efficiently run with smart meters. It means that there's much less estimation taking place. I think the, the one of the challenges that, that we've seen around smart meters is that a lot of the way people people often communicate smart meters as being um, good for society in general and and kind of the same for the for the for the individual. Um, but what we've experienced is that actually it's it's good for both audiences. Yes, I, I found that very interesting. Which is generally, if you can find a, an altruistic reason and a selfish reason, even if the selfish reason is relatively small, uh, it's somehow much easier. I mean, I always jokingly, well, only half jokingly said when we had an energy client, I always said that, uh, look, one of the great benefits of a smart meter is that when you leave the house, if you put it next to your door, when you leave the house, you can check you haven't left anything switched on. So it stops your house burning down. You know, hair straighteners, I think, are the worst offender in that. Uh, I've got two daughters who are 19, so you can imagine my terror of hair straighteners. And um, uh, so I, I always argue that by making it purely altruistic, you are missing a trick. Um, but, you know, it's also when you when you when you research altruistic messages, I think market research can often do you wrong because who's going to sit there in a group of strangers and go, to be absolutely honest, I'm a bit of a selfish bastard. But equally, you don't need that much of an individual benefit to get people excited. Um, and once people, by the way, adopt the behavior, then they will, you know, they'll tell their own story about why they've got a smart meter. People have no problem supplying the reasons once you've supplied the behavior. Mm. Um and I, I think I, I never knew that business of futurity in the smart meter. The idea being that um, uh, if, for example, you start installing solar, um, possibly if you start getting an electric car, other things like that, a smart meter will be increasingly important. It, it, it's it's a, a, going to be the foundation for all of those all of those things that are going to help us reduce energy costs and reduce carbon emissions. Well, one of the things that we that one of the things that is most evil about the energy industry today in my personal view is that the the true cost of energy is really hidden from, from consumers so that the price of generating electricity varies hugely through the day during peak hours say between 5 and 7 p.m um, in the uk we have to turn on the oldest most inefficient highest cost dirtiest power stations in order to meet that demand um, and so the price of electricity is actually very high um, during, uh, uh, you know, off peak periods, say in the middle of the afternoon, um, we can, we don't have to use those expensive power stations. We can rely on, um, you know, low cost renewable energy to, to provide um, all the power that people need and energy prices are very low, but because um, we have these uh, uh, old legacy meters that don't know what time of day people are consuming energy. Um, there's no way for us to set a different price for these two products that have very different costs: peak energy and off-peak energy. 
Thank you. Um, thank, thank you for telling me this because let me let me share an idea with you. And everybody I've shared it with looks at me as if I'm a lunatic. And if I if 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 you can reassure me that I'm not deranged, I argued if you want to reduce the UK's carbon emissions, okay, a large way of how you do it is not by actually reducing activity, but by time shifting it. Okay. Now there are a lot of things we can't time shift. We can't time shift without a battery. Okay. We can't time shift. Um, you know, if you have the Tesla, what is it? The wall thing that Tesla makes, um, uh, where you know it stores effectively a day's worth of electricity uh, on the wall of your home. Different matter. I can't time shift watching television. Realistically, I can't time shift. Um, uh, you know, you can time shift heating, I guess, with a storage heater. Historically, that was how it was done. But I can time shift my tumble dryer, my washing machine and my dishwasher quite easily. And I always ask this question, why don't you, since, you know, the UK after 10 p.m. is probably, what, 70 percent nuclear powered, isn't it? I mean, essentially, you know, late in the evening, you've probably got a nuclear powered washing machine. Um, whether it's French nuclear power or British, but nonetheless, it's pretty damn clean. Why can't you just have a dot on your television or that goes red, amber, green? And it simply says green means this is a great time to turn on your appliances. Amber means wait a bit. And red means don't do it now. OK, now, OK, the change is only going to happen at the margin. You know, not everybody is going to be able to do it. If you work nights, you can't put your tumble dryer on when you're out of the house because it might catch fire. Okay, but nonetheless, the attempts to get people to time shift in their electricity use seem to be basically amount to zero. And I think people will do it voluntarily without the price mechanism. I mean, a demonstration of that, Ocado's green van is a brilliant, brilliant idea, which encourages people without any economic incentive to book a delivery when someone in their neighborhood is already having a delivery. So it minimizes the distance that the van has to travel. OK, and people do that just because they're clicking on a green van, not a purple one. Mm. And I've never understood why no attempt. And I spoke to this guy who was a bloody Oxford professor, and I and he was in charge of something like UK energy policy in some academic think tank. And when I said, "Look, you can simply ask people nicely and say, you know, when in doubt, put your dishwasher on at ten o'clock, not at not at five o'clock," okay? And he looked at me as if I was completely deranged. Am I deranged? Because I I do not exclude that possibility in anything I suggest. But it's always struck me that time shifting is a great way to reduce carbon emissions simply by load balancing. Rory, I just, you know, Amit is the expert on this. And I'll, just before he, he comes in, I will say one thing, which is that I completely agree with you on um, load shifting. We ran an experiment about 18 months ago where we gave an app to our, to our members, a selection of, of members, and we said, um, every day that you use less energy during the peak periods, um, we will uh, reward you um, with uh, a, a financial, both a financial reward, and also um, you will accumulate a, a green leaf on this app that, that, that we created. Um, and what we found is that uh, the the users, whilst they 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 liked the um, they liked the cash saving that they made because they were you know not using energy during these peak periods, the thing that users responded most to was getting a streak of green leaves um, in the app. And it became, uh, for a, a quite a large segment of, of, of users, it became s such fun 
that um, during those peak periods of usage, uh, some of them even um, turned off uh, their uh, <laughs> turned off their Wi-Fi in their home in order to reduce their usage during those oh. peak periods. And uh, and and um, there was a there was a, a bug in the app, and they didn't get their green leaf because we'd lost connection with the uh, with the <laughs> with the meter that we put in the home. Um, but it was very playing that game. Uh, was not really about the, the the financial reward. It was really about um, about the leaves and and uh, and as you say, a, a light in the home that just shows shows members when energy is uh, highly carbon intensive and when it's not um, would, would be very powerful. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I mean, one very interesting thing is that people have absolutely no clue what uses energy and what doesn't. So turning off your Wi-Fi, to be honest is actually a bit silly because, I mean, you know, it, it, it's rather like uh, um, uh, there's a behavioural scientist who always apologises for being part of a campaign to get people to turn off their mobile phone chargers when not in use <laughs> because he said what the evidence showed is that people felt great because they were doing something, but the the actual effort amounted to spitting in the Pacific. You know, it was a completely <laughs> pointless gestural... It was kind of gesture politics of energy, really. And, of course, I noticed that highly educated people, my brother's a bloody um, astrophysicist, so I've had free lectures throughout my life on this kind of stuff. But there are people who literally would have no idea that a kettle uses more energy than a mobile phone charger. I mean, you know, someone I know who is highly educated was very angry because some guests stayed at her house and they charged their mobile phones overnight without asking permission. Okay. Now, I don't know what it is, what, 0.7p, 1.3p, but that same person wouldn't wouldn't even dream of kind of demurring if someone just turned a kettle on or t- turned on a fan heater. And so it's it's very strange how badly aligned, because, of course, human perception, heat, which is the really energy-intensive thing, we're much... We're very sensitive to light, so we tend to see a television or a hi-fi as producing very high stimulus, and therefore we assume it's energy-intensive. And I think I think that mistake where we don't realise that most of it's kind of heat in one shape or another is a really interesting case of humans getting it wrong. But thank you so much for telling me I'm not mad. Amit, do you want to add a bit more to my time-shifting idea? Because I yeah. think your leaf idea is brilliant. Uh, the great problem is if you go to an economist, they'll always recommend bribing people. 
And my argument is, look, paying people to do things is the last thing you should try, because by definition, it's the most expensive way of generating a behaviour. Yeah, I I think um, I totally agree as well. I think the time shift clearly um, it has it has the if if we time shift effectively in this country, it really it means that we don't have to build some huge expensive power stations. Like that's the sort of the outcome from it. So it's hugely valuable um, financially, but also yeah in terms of carbon emissions. Um, I I think the leaf example is really interesting. You know, the, the amounts of money that we're talking, even at the peakiest period um, in the day, if you were to time shift that to the evening, you're talking still in, you know, pence uh, saving on one day. And if that's the incentive that you're giving to people and you're saying, hey, save X pence today by changing your behavior. I don't think it's I don't think it's as attractive what, um, as there being a sort of an immediate reward, um, an immediate feel good factor in the, in the form of you know, the leaf example that Hayden gave. Um, I think one of the other things that we'd seen early on, and there's been a lot of research on, you know, the most effective way to help people, uh, or, you know, reduce their usage is to help them compare it to, um, compare it to neighbours, so compare it to similar, similar start properties. Yeah. So So you have, you know, you can give them say, look, you could save this much money by, by changing your behavior, or you could reduce carbon emissions by, uh, this much which has a bit more of an effect but the the, the the best way to do it is to compare it to compare it to neighbors um, or compare it to similar properties and again going back to the point on smart meters the smart meter really enables you to do that because you can have this much richer and more granular data about about usage that you can see um, and you can also align it to to different um, to 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 different appliances in the house as well. So people can start to understand um, how much is being used when they use certain appliances, as opposed to just thinking, you know, it's, it, at the moment, there's there's no link between what you're using, what you switch on in the house and and, and the effect no. that has, and the bill that you get, which, you know, it, it is just a bill that you get as a PDF or, or, or in the post. So they're, they're very removed from each other and smart meters um, can really help bring that together. They close the feedback loop and speak. Exactly. I'm really intrigued by your move into solar because I think solar is a fantastic area where, um, to be honest, the technology has advanced enormously in you know in the last ten years, to a point where it would make sense for a lot of us to have a bank of panels on our roof or on our lawn, and yet the pace of adoption for the most part seems dismally slow. One thing that really annoyed me, by the way, is that the the standard way in which it's justified is the time it takes to repay your initial investment. Okay. Hmm. Now, that strikes me as a very bad frame. By contrast, there are a lot of people who've got £100,000 sitting in an account which pays 1.5% interest. And if you spent £8,000 of that on solar panels, the effective return you'd get would be something like, what, eight? Is that about reasonable? Even in the UK. I'm not talking about Phoenix, Arizona. Even in the UK, you can kind of get 8% of your investment back every year. Well, if you talking about repayment times makes it seem like a bit of a mugs game. But then if you look at it, investment companies don't say that. You know, nobody offering 1.7% APR says, hey, you can get your money back in X years. What they say is, look at this return. And, you know, since you own the value of your panels, 
you can effectively treat that as capex mentally. And I, I and the other problem with the solar industry is that the technical vocabulary used is utterly baffling. I mean, unless you've got a degree in kind of physics, you can't, you know, there's so much talk about ampage, wattage, voltage, etc. that it, it's, you know, if you said basically make a cup of tea every X minutes, you would have concretized the benefit of the panel. But the language used is utterly baffling. So I'm really intrigued what your plans are for solar without giving away any trade secrets, obviously. So um, our plans for solar are, well, to address a lot of the issues that you just mentioned, Rory. Number one, I think it's got to be so much simpler. Um, I think car uh, manufacturers have made the purchase of a car very easy, right? There's financing provided. It's the, the, you're not, you're not, um, you're, you're buying into something that's much more emotional rather than purely functional. Um, I think that we can provide exactly that with solar panels. Um, the, the second thing that, that we have today is that people, as you, as you mentioned before, people don't really have a good understanding of their energy usage and what impact having these solar panels will, um, will do. Um, so that, I think, is a role that the energy supplier has to play because we're the ones that have the information on their energy usage. And there's a bit of a conflict of interest here because if you're, if you know, if the energy supplier is making money from energy that the that the consumer is using, then what incentive to, does the energy supplier have to see them reduce their usage? That means that there's less revenue and, and less profit for the energy supplier. Now, um, Bulb's approach on this is slightly different, I think, to a traditional energy supplier where we want to keep our members for a longer period of time and we want those members to be very happy with Bulb. So we would happily see them. Um, use less energy if it meant that they stayed with us for longer. Um, the other thing that, uh, that that I'll mention on this, without and again, like without getting ahead of ourselves, but just looking at these these products on their own is probably the, the wrong way of doing it. Because if you have solar panels, then it makes sense for you to have a battery. If you have solar panels, a battery, and an electric vehicle, it means that you can charge your electric vehicle. Um, not from the grid, but from your from your battery and from your solar panels, um, and it becomes even cheaper. So the benefits of having these systems um, that are made up of various components um, are, are much, you know, two plus two equals five um, in these situations. So I think what um, what we're hoping to do, and it's not it's it's not there yet. This this area is still in the in the the sort of very early innovator uh, sort of stage. Um, but what we're hoping to do is is um, is provide bundles of products that all work really nicely together. Um, the software is there to help manage the products and take away all of that complexity that at the moment um, is very uh, off-putting to, to to the mainstream consumer. Um, and uh, and I think this is hopefully going to become something that people don't just look at on a on a financial basis, but is also part of. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of their views and their beliefs. They want to help green up um, their energy usage uh, and, and, and sort of be a part of the future as opposed to be a part of the, you know, the old fossil fuel past. I think solar as well. Um, the, the, yeah, when people talk about it, it's a really good point around payback periods. So say, yeah, mm. you'll pay it back in 15 years. Um, a 15, 15 year payback is much better return than you get on anything uh on any other sort of yes. financial product, as, as you mentioned. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, right, is that the, a lot of the subsidies for these schemes um, 
have been removed or reduced over time. And yet the paybacks have or, or the return has remained similar, may, maybe slightly lower. But um, and, and, you know, that just goes to show how the technology is evolving. So it, which I think is, you know, hugely exciting. You don't have a level of, um, of of government subsidy required for for this to make sense. And we expect to continue in that rate. So, you know, the returns or um or your paybacks you know sh- should improve as well going do you, think, do you think we might have got this wrong that instead of trying to sell and subsidize electric cars we should have subsidized solar and battery now my argument is can you get a battery i don't know enough about this which is a fast charger or a reasonably fast charger for an electric car because if I could have a mixture of solar power going into the battery whenever it's sunny and a trickle, i.e., you know, a couple of kilowatts from my ordinary one phase electricity supply, but only the trickle only turns on when there's no pressure on the grid. There's no, you know, um, there aren't any coal fired power stations being kicked into action okay so i have a combination of solar going in with a bit of weather forecasting built in as well so it can anticipate how much solar energy it's going to garner and then a trickle then when i come home in my car i plug the car into the wall battery and it charges at what 11 kilowatts rather than 2.8 okay if because my argument is if you could get people to install an electric car charger they're automatically going to buy an electric car right because if you've got an electric car charger at home, you'd feel a bit of a dickhead going out and buying a diesel. Okay? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Once you've got the charger, you'll kind of buy the car in some shape or form. And so actually, the home upgrade might be the first step. Because once you have one of these devices, which is both using off-peak power to generate uh, energy for your car and for your home, but also for your car, Um, And so it's load balancing within your home and it's providing a large amount of solar power for your car. Um, Okay, it's £5,000 to buy one of these things, but equally if it's paying back at a rate of, um, uh, you know, quite a few percent a year, I don't have any trouble justifying that to myself. And then my next car is going to be electric anyway. Completely agree. And I I think there's, if we look at the the ways in which we can lower people's bills and lower their emissions, it all starts in the home. You know, one of the, the, the we, we're talking about the exciting stuff around electric vehicles and, and batteries, but if we were to go back and look at the purely, you know, <laughs> with the economist hat on, looking at what is the cheapest way of lowering people's bills and lowering their carbon emissions, it is still to find uh, those home insulation measures uh, and, yep. and you know, m- make people's homes um, more energy efficient. And and uh, and again, I think that energy suppliers have a have a huge role to play in just making it so much easier for people to see how uh, how the energy efficiency of their home compares. I mean, Amit Amit was mentioning this um, was was mentioning this before. It's just it, at the moment, it's very hard for people to compare how energy efficient their home is versus uh, versus their neighbour or versus a, a home of a, of a, of a similar uh, age, um, and, and our hope is that we can um, we can make that much much simpler for people. Because one other thing I'd suggest um, is have a look in future. Let's say someone installs solar panels. Okay, now the standard way in which billing works, and an economist will see nothing wrong with this, is that your electricity bills go down commensurately with the amount of solar power being fed in. Okay, I would argue keep people's bills the same and pay an annual rebate as a lump sum. 
Mm. Because it there are two reasons for this. One of which is that a bonus is perceived differently from a saving. Okay, so uh, you know, let's be honest. You know, if you suddenly get a check for three hundred quid, you might go, "Wow, that's brilliant! I'll go on holiday." Okay, whereas generally you don't see a saving on something in the same way. But also in terms of talkability, if you got people saying, actually, my uh, because of my solar panels, my energy rebate this year was 400 quid. OK, now you've got real conversation. Rory, I, I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, that you brought this up because I do, you know, I remember back to one of our, or our uh, early conversation um, and we were talking about immediacy. Um, and, you know, going back to the point around how much you can save by switching to a supplier like Bulb, like right now, uh, it is, you know, without solar, et cetera, but, you know, from, from, from the big six suppliers is in the order of, um, you know, 250, uh, to, on, on those standard variable tariffs, 250 pounds per year. And, um, but, you know, if you break that down into saving per day, it's what, 70, 70 pence a day, um, there's no urgency to 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 go and do that whilst providing something up front um, in in a market where there is a lot of inertia can really help get people over the line and um, you know that was an early conversation we had it was part of the you know fed into um, also you know our referral program and I think it very much applies here as well with with um, you know re almost like rebranding solar and the benefits rather than talking about 15 year paybacks which is one of an awful way to to describe the benefits it, it is it genuinely the, i mean if you'd ask me to say can you come up as a copywriter with the least motivating proposition <laughs> for this action? okay i i'd struggle to beat talking about payback times you know it really is kind of awful i mean it's worth remembering by the way that scientific metrics aren't objective now that sounds a very strange thing to say the way we perceive them so one of the problems with miles per hour as an economy metric with cars is the difference between 12 miles per gallon. I'm terribly sorry. Uh, the difference between 12 miles per gallon and 18 miles per gallon doesn't seem that much of a big deal, whereas the difference between 50 and 60 seems bigger. But of course, in terms of your impact on the planet, moving from 12 to 18 is an inordinately bigger um, improvement than moving from 50 to 60. But the numbers don't convey that. Uh, similarly, by the way, with speed, it always interests me that if we actually, if car speedometers didn't read out miles per hour, they instead read out, um, let's say, minutes per mile, I think we drive differently. One of the things I noticed when I got a sat nav, okay, is there's a huge difference in your arrival time, whether you're going at 20 or you're going at 40, obviously, okay. What I suddenly learned through having a sat-nav is actually wellying it down the bloody motorway at, at 83 actually makes sod all difference to your arrival time compared to driving at 70. You know, it's actually, although it seems like 13 miles an hour, in terms of the effect it has on your arrival time, it's surprisingly trivial. Hmm. And so, you know, now the interesting thing is, you know, I always wondered how would people drive if speedometers were calibrated the other way around? Because certainly, you know, if miles per gallon were litres or, or gallons per 100 miles, I guess, would be what you'd use as a measure, um, we'd view car economy very differently. And so I think there's this terrible, terrible danger that um, we tend to look at scientific units as if they have this kind of perfect objectivity. But of course, the way you choose to present them 
has an enormous bearing. It's rather like those behavioral science experiments, whether you say 90% of people will survive or 10% of people will die. You know, that how you present objective information has an enormous bearing on how people behave. So one of the interesting things with solar would be the investigation of new metrics. You know, the cup of tea metric would be a very British one, wouldn't it? You know, you know, my paddles are producing 3,000 <laughs> cups of tea per day would be a kind you know. And so there's something interesting here, I think, which is re- really worth exploring in the energy sector. Because my, my contention is, this is why I find B2B exciting and I find energy exciting. I've had this very weird um, kind of revelation, having been a copywriter for 30 years, that the biggest opportunities for really exciting marketing are actually in the areas which uh, are most dominated by engineers. So any kind of sector which tends to be dominated by an economic or an engineering mindset actually contains the biggest scope for what you might call psychological experimentation. Because the people doing the thinking are very, very logical and they assume everybody else is the same. We um, we have experienced this ourselves uh, in the way we communicate to, to our members. So we um, each year we send an annual summary of uh, of people's account to them. Um, and the traditional way that an energy company does this is you send someone a financial statement of how much energy they've used in kilowatt hours and how much uh, how much they've spent in pounds. And what we what we wanted to do was was make it a, a bit more interesting um, and give people more of a understanding of what was different about their relationship with bulb than with some of the other utilities. Um, what we what we landed on, uh, and actually we, we pinched these ideas um, from a, a company called Doppler, um, which is a, a, a travel company, and they would send a, uh, a year in review, um, having looked at where people traveled. Um, and it was it was like lovely illustrations, really um, uh, you know, they would talk about the distances that people had gone um, and uh, and the amount of carbon emissions they'd emitted in and in, in, in terms of instead of talking about it in terms of kilograms, they they gave uh, they you know they talked about the cars or buses or va- you know the weight of the cars or buses or vans that people had used. Um, and so what we developed was the the bulb impact report. Um, and I think the first year we did it. Uh, we just we just did it um, in terms of an, we just picked animals, and um, and so we said sent people this message. Of course, we talked about how much uh, electricity and gas people had used and the, the amount they'd spend, but we also talked about the carbon emissions they they'd avoided and the weight of those carbon emissions. And because people don't really know what a ton of carbon dioxide looks like, um, we talked about the weight in terms of the animals. But the really interesting thing about that was that people started screenshotting these statements that we'd sent to them and um, and posting them on social media. And it became, it sort of, <laughs> it became a bit of a, it sort of snowballed um, into, I think one of the, one of the biggest, um, uh, you know, moments of communication we'd had as a, as a company at, at the time. Um, and so I think both making something a bit more, a bit more fun, a bit more interesting, a bit more approachable, but also connecting it actually to the individual. So, you know, people said, I'm a, I'm a walrus or, you know, I'm, 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 I'm an elephant. Um, that, that ended up uh, m- making the information a bit more um, 
yeah, I think that you know more widely shared and more widely absorbed. The, the the other the other point I'd make on this is that it was just positive and fun and, yeah. and more approachable. And I think so much of of energy and bills is 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 negative and it feels like tax and it's and you know you everything you do something goes wrong. So what, what we're really hoping to do is make this something that people can feel positive about and therefore want to spend more time thinking about and spend more time improving. And the difference that makes is extraordinary. I mean, just re-quantifying things is so important. I, I had a, I've got a little flat in Deal on the coast and it's on the second, first and second floor. The bathroom's on the second floor. And I've got a water bill and being the kind of nerdy person I am, I count, the water bill comes in litres. Okay, how many litres you use? Now, I think I'm right in this that a thousand litres is a tonne. Okay, is that right? I think yes. a thousand litres of water weighs a tonne, a metric tonne. I suddenly thought, if only you told me that my water bill saves me carrying 14 tonnes of water up two flights of stairs, okay? Um, if you framed it in weight, okay, I would have said, I'm not paying you people nearly enough. For God's sake, this is miraculous. But but everything's done in the, the immediately logical kind of SI unit. And quite often, you know, SI units don't map onto emotional response. You know, mm. it's uh, and um, I know for a mathematician, this must be maddening to you. But I mean, you know, we don't perceive the world in the way that scientific instruments perceive the world. And it would be very strange in evolutionary terms if we did. You know, we're calibrated for survival, not for objectivity. Mm. But I mean, I, I think what you're doing there with the walrus and the elephant thing is exactly uh, what's needed. And what's interesting, is, of course, because you you're a great product and you can afford to do it. I think there's a strong tendency in a large part of um, uh, the whole utilities industry because it's an area where people are happy not to think about it. Uh, it adopts effectively what, what used to be called sort of default selling, you know, which is what we'll do is we'll make sure nobody thinks about this very much and therefore nobody will do anything. And you're in a wonderful position because of your strengths that you can actually afford to engage people emotionally much more because you're you're not predominantly dependent on inertia. Mm. Um, I I I have to say I think that's truly wonderful. And now, oh, I, I want to add one more question. By the way, uh, you're expanding into Spain. Any particular reason you chose Spain? And also, what differences have you found compared to the UK? And what learnings have you taken so far? Very good question. Um, so, what we looked at was which countries could we expand into where they had a similar regulatory environment where consumers had the choice of you know who they got their energy from um, and then the last the last piece was we you know we looked at um, the size of the country uh, because obviously it adds a lot of complexity uh, adding another adding another market to the business um, and when we looked at you know at all the different countries um, around the world we we found that uh, Spain um, was a was a country where consumers could have uh, a choice over where they got got their energy from. There was a big interest in renewables um, in Spain, um, and people. It was it was in some ways similar to the UK in in um, in the sort of 2013 2014, where there were some challenges, but they were re relatively small, and consumers were just waking up to the idea that they they could choose where they got their energy from. Um, so. Uh, so we uh, we found a great country manager uh, in in Ivan um, and he joined and and started to set up in Spain. 
we have seen uh, a lot of similarities in Spain, but also a lot of differences. Um, so because uh, in, in, in Spain, a lot of consumers are, are more used to dealing with their energy supplier over the telephone than over the internet. Um, we've, we've received a little bit more uh, contact from our, from our Spanish members over the phone. Um, but what we've been able to do is, is make the digital tools um, that they have for managing their accounts um, you know, more, more obvious to, to, those, to those members. And we've seen them then switch to, to interacting with Bulb Online. Um, which is for both uh, good good for us and good for them because it means they can have lower bills. And the proposition is the same, lower bills, greener energy, both. It is, yes. And in Spain, uh, there's a very interesting, um, <laughs> it's, it really surprised me. In Spain, they, they don't really produce much more solar uh, uh, electricity than we do in, um, in the UK and in Germany, which given the uh, the number of, uh, hours of, of sunlight that, that they have um, in Spain each year compared to what, what, what we have here, even in, in sunny deal, um, is, uh, is, is very surprising. So, so there's a you big know, deal. There. It's got its own microclimate. We always say that. <laughs> That's really strange. So you have a very large country and area with enormous amounts of sunshine. Why do you think they've been so slow? You would have thought it was a bit of a gift. It is a gift, and I think it's changing very quickly. Um, but a lot of these things are a result of, of policy choices, and 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 in some ways, you, you know, the the solar industry in the UK really benefited from those subsidies at the start when it was very nascent and, and just just getting up to speed, um, and it, and is now able to to sort of stand on its own without the subsidies. Um, but in other some other uh, other countries, it, they maybe didn't receive that that support early on. I think it's interesting. What's your take on nuclear, by the way? Is nuclear part of your mix? It's not part of our mix in the UK. Um, the main reason being that it's more expensive than renewables, um, and uh, and and we don't think it makes sense. Um, there are. It is part of our mix. We, so we're not just um, operating in in Spain, by the way. We're also operating in France and Texas. Um, wow! And, You're going uh, into it, Texas. Yes. Yes, the, uh, the third country that we've launched into. <laughs> um, but it is part of our mix in, in France. Um, so in France, they have a lot of, of, of nuclear power um, and, uh, and, and we've, uh, we're purchasing um, energy through the, uh, it's called the Aren program in, in France. The, um, yeah, our view on nuclear is that it's, it's not as good as renewable energy. We would prefer for everything to be renewables, but it is carbon uh, carbon free if you exclude the uh, carbon emissions required to build the plants which are which is significant and it's part of the mix in some sense in that it provides constant base load doesn't it so i mean you might argue that the constancy of supply uh is of some value particularly overnight it is but you need to look at the cost of that supply um, and when you look at the cost of some of the new if a, if a nuclear plant has been has been built, the costs are sunk. Then I think it makes sense to use the power that comes from it. If you if you look at the cost that's required to to build some of the new nuclear plants in the UK, it is, uh, you know, more than twice the cost of producing electricity with, uh, with wind with onshore wind energy. And so you see, wind, solar, some degree of gas, I guess, or do you use none? I mean, again, I think this is this is Amit's area of expertise. Uh, uh, over to you, Amit. 
Yeah, we don't have. Um, so for our electricity, we are um, 100% renewable. So the vast majority of that comes from wind. I think it's about 70%. The remainder is solar. And there's a, t there's a little bit of um, anaerobic digestion as well. Oh, bio, biomass or whatever it is, is it? Yeah, yeah it's not biomass. So we don't do the wood, you know, wood pellets where they import lots of wood from uh, from other countries and uh, and you know how, how Drax has been you know converted from being the biggest coal-fired station in Europe into becoming um, you know a big wood wood pellet burning facility and its class is renewable so we don't purchase uh, from those sorts of places but where you're taking waste or slurry um, and anaerobically digesting it ah. um, and then the the uh, the, the sort of the byproduct from that is then used to produce electricity. So there's a, there's a little bit of that as well. And then on gas, uh, we do also purchase some, so, you know, gas is predominantly a fossil fuel, but there is also some biomethane in the UK, again, produced from waste um, or green gas. And we do purchase some of that as well, but the electricity is a hundred percent renewable. We don't, um, we don't buy from gas fired, uh, gas fired power stations. I think it's fair to say to conclude on an optimistic note um, that the UK could be considered a bit of a success story here if you look at the relative balance of the grid and how it's changed over 20 years. Um, although there's still a lot of progress to be made, there have been, for example, I think whole weekends, particularly under lockdown, but even before lockdown, there were whole weekends where the UK burned no coal, for example. Um, I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I was told there was a day in which we were carbon free for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. Now, it's probably a bit of an overclaim, but I thought it was because some of the energy is imported and you can't be quite sure where it comes from. But um, I thought I thought that was a pretty impressive achievement. Rory, just 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 I mean, it's not just a it's not just a couple of weekends. Right. I think this year the UK went 67 days coal free. That's truly astonishing. Yeah. If you yeah. can. If you contrast that with the fact that, uh, you know, if you think about it, in, the in my childhood, uh, a miners' strike would effectively turn off the lights. <laughs> yeah, that really is something. Yeah, and uh, that uh, the UK, the UK is recognised. Do you think there are areas where we need to invest more, or or are there areas of future excitement that um, uh, you think uh, are worthy of investigation? The UK is a real leader in offshore wind like the global the global leader in offshore wind which is really exciting um what's happened there and yeah the cost of offshore wind uh, of new build offshore wind is less than half the cost of a new large nuclear site so fantastic progress i think the thing now is if you want to really encourage further mass build out of um of of renewables so intermittent renewables like wind and solar you also need to accompany that with a mass build out of storage um and i think the exciting thing there as well is that you're now starting to see that the economics of storage so large-scale storage large-scale batteries um the the economics of those do make sense without without uh, government subsidy and so if you have that you can really start to smooth out the intermittency from this large-scale renewable build out so you know, if those things continue in the same direction, I think the decarbonising of electricity generation in the UK is, uh, as you mentioned, has been on a good track. And I think the future is very promising. Um, so, yeah, as long as we can continue with that, you know, build out of storage alongside.
I'd just like to say Amit and Hayden from Bulb, thank you both enormously for your, for your time. I think this has been really, really um, enlightening in every respect. And um, that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, the podcast, once again, is brought to you by Alf Insight. That's ALF Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, just visit the website alfinsight.com. That's ALF Insight, or one word, dot com. And the series is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed or found useful anything you've heard, then just give us a like. All I can say is thanks for listening and be back soon. Thank you very much indeed. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.